Well, good morning. Uh, if you brought a Bible, you can open it to the book of Acts. We'll be in chapter 9. And before I read our text this morning, just a couple of things. Uh, you might have noticed, and just a reminder, that we are shortening our services as we begin to meet uh, with masks because we recognize that it's not the thing you wanted to do on Sunday morning is sit for three hours with a mask. So we're shortening that service. Um, and one of those ways that we're shortening it, as you've noticed too, is that we're not having a functioning offering uh, as part of our worship, but we still are, are, are giving as part of our worship. And so I'm going to remind you that you can do that online or there are boxes, baskets in the back for you to, um, uh, to give uh, as, you, as you feel led. But I wanted to remind you of that as well. So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Acts, chapter 9, uh, perhaps one of the greatest, greatest um, uh, accounts here uh, in, in, in all of Scripture the conversion of Saul to Paul. So let's read. And, and for my reading, I'm just going to go through verse 9. This will be the primary focus of our ser- my sermon. Beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the, the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went, out, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this word from Luke and the book of Acts. We pray now that as we uh, look to it, as we look to your word, that you would open our eyes and our ears that we may see and hear things otherwise we could not. Uh, would your spirit be with us? Would you teach us this morning, we pray, for your glory alone. Amen. Well, so far, as we've been traveling along in Acts, uh, we, as, as we uh, moved from chapter 2, where we saw Jesus' spirit given at Pentecost, we have seen since then uh, multitudes of believers um, coming or converting to this thing called the way, but we, we know it as Christianity uh, today. We've seen uh, both Jews and Gentiles convert. We've seen priests convert, which speak of a higher class of people converting to Christianity. We've seen Hellenistic or non-ethnic Jewish people convert to the way. With Philip back in, or in, the, in the previous chapter, the gospel goes out to Samaria at this point, leaving Jerusalem. And if we remember, we know that uh, some Samaria, Samaritans and Jews were not uh, the best of friends. And so m- more barriers uh, being uh, leveled as the gospel goes out, as Jesus' spirit goes out. And then last week, we saw the conversion of an Ethiopian as the gospel goes to Africa. Uh, the spirit needless to say, is gathering all ethnicities and all classes. And we are just in chapter 8. Now as we move to chapter 9, the question at this point is, who is this gospel not for? 
But as we move into chapter 9, Jesus wants to add another group to the list for whom his gospel mission is for, and it's his enemies, those who persecute him. And so to that end, with those two points you see there in your bulletin, I want us to look at the blueprint for gospel mission uh, and then the power for gospel mission in this passage. So let's look at that first one, the blueprint for gospel mission. We see this blueprint in really in two ways, ways. We see it in the range of the gospel mission or those who it includes, but we also see it in how those, those are included. Uh, so let's look at, look at that first one there. In chapter 8, we read of this man named Saul who is, as chapter 8 says in verse 3, ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Um, At the death of Stephen, we saw in verse 58 that Saul is present, actually perhaps leading the charge against him. And then as we move in the, in the chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Saul tells us that the whole purpose of him traveling to Damascus, which is a six-day journey of over 140 miles, was to capture these people of the way who had fled, bring them back to Jerusalem for trial, and most certainly death. Chapter 9 opens with Saul, quote, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Calvin, uh, on this verse, says that Luke deliberately wants to portray Saul as a wild and ferocious beast. Saul's by any stretch of the imagination, bloodthirsty for these Christ followers. But why? Well, for many reasons. First, Paul is a Pharisee, which means he's a Jew of Jews. And a zealous one for sure, which means that any aversion to the law or practice of faith should be punished. In his zeal, you might say that he knew Hellenistic compromisers when he saw them. Consider Stephen in his own mind. Which, according to Dennis Johnson, poses a threat to the purity of Israel's allegiance toward the living God. After all, Deuteronomy 17:7 tells Israel to purge the purity of Israel, or excuse me, to purge the evil from among you. Saul's anger is with those professing Jesus as God, because that's blasphemy. And so zeal would actually look like this type of persecution Saul is carrying out in front of us. In fact, in Philippians 3, Saul, who becomes Paul, Paul will write and say this about himself, that I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, which is the best, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, persecuting blasphemous Jews like these Christians is a sign that you truly are a follower of God. And Johnson goes on to suggest that before Saul understood who Jesus was, Deuteronomy 21, which clearly says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, means if Jesus was hung on a tree, cross, right, this must be God's curse on him. And therefore, a sign that Jesus was not God's anointed. Therefore, all who follow are not just wrong, but they are evildoers, proclaiming one man God whom God has clearly cursed. Why shouldn't they be punished? This is why Paul is pers- or Saul is persecuting the church. So what does Jesus do as we come to this text? What does he do? Does he avoid Saul? 
Does does he punish Saul himself, right, for what he's doing? No, he does the unthinkable. He goes after the persecutor himself, his enemy, demonstrating what has always been true of God since the beginning for his gospel mission, that this gospel, his love, his grace is not just for his friends. It's not just for the, the neighbors around us. It's not just for strangers even. It's not just for good people. But it's also for your enemies, and those of the worst kind. This is the range that I'm speaking of, of the gospel mission, the blueprint, if you will. If I'm a recent convert then, before this point, and I'm watching all these different groups come to Christ, right, I might begin to have a category for who God will include, you know. The nice Smiths down the street, we had some folks from out of town that came in and became to know the Lord. This is great. We even had some foreigners come in. But as soon as Saul is converted, my categories are blown. This man aided in the death of Stephen. My understanding then of what is happening here, I don't know what's going on. Which means my, also my understanding of God, what, must get bigger. It must get bigger. And my range for who can be included in this kingdom, if you will, must never be capped. That's the blueprint so far, friends. But second, notice how Jesus deals with his enemies in this story. He what? He pursues them. And he pursues them until he gets them. In chapter 26, as Paul shares his conversion story again, he adds the phrase that Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? What are goads? A goad is a spike stick used for driving animals. It's a way to tame an animal if it's wild. The goad was used to counter bad behavior in an animal, animal until it stopped it altogether and it went in the direction you wanted it to go in, which implies patience, right? implies persistence. God has been pursuing Saul, showing him over and over himself. Yet Saul resisted or kicked against the direction he, was dri- he had been driving in until finally, en route to a town for the purpose of tracking down more believers like a wild animal, divine grace, as it always does, breaks in like a light brighter than the sun. Leaving Paul blind and asking, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am the risen Messiah whom you think God cursed by having him hung on a tree. But in reality, I became a curse for you, Saul, for your sins so that you might be forgiven. This is the goad you kick against, but it never stopped me from pursuing you. This is what Jesus does. And do you know what we call that unrelenting pursuit? We just sang about it. We call it grace, amazing grace. John Stott put it this way, if we ask what caused Saul's conversion, only one answer is possible. What stands out from the narrative is the sovereign grace of God through Jesus Christ. Saul did not decide for Christ, as we might say. On the contrary, he was persecuting Christ. It was rather Christ who decided for him and intervened in his life. Amen.
Saul decides to persecute Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He goes after him. Don't miss that. But not to harm him, to make him his own. In this way, Saul's story is our own, isn't it? Jesus is the one who pursues even his own enemies in order to make them his sons or daughters. If we thought Pentecost was amazing, chapter 9 takes it up a notch. Right, and it begs the question, who is this gospel not for? This is the blueprint for the gospel mission at this point, uh, or the range, as I've said, for who this gospel mission is for, but also how God deals with those, even as enemies, to include them. Now let's look at the power for gospel mission, how we will actually participate in it. That's my second point. And the power for the gospel mission, according to chapter 9, is that Jesus has, in fact, united himself to us, which means he is not only with his people as they participate in his mission, but they can never be separated from him, from him as they participate in his mission, not even persecution or death. For Luke, the conversion of Saul to Paul was so important that he records it three different times, once here and then two more times later on in chapters 22 and 26. We could actually make this account a series unto itself. There's so much here. But for the rest of our time, uh, one of the reasons for this is, is what Jesus says in verse 4, and this is where I'm going to focus for the rest of our time, when he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Think with me for just a moment. How would this text change if Jesus had said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute these people? I think this would be good to discuss even if we're in some type of small group or just talking with people over lunch. How would the text change if, if we just substitute these people or, or, or what, you, what, are you, what are you doing? And I think even as we do that, it allows us to feel the weight of what the text actually is saying, doesn't it, right? For Jesus to say, why do you persecute me, is the claim that what happens to believers, what happens to himself, which means Jesus then has truly united himself to Christians by his spirit. They are one. But it also means that Jesus is still alive. It's not, Saul, Saul, why did you persecute me back when I was living? It's, why do you persecute me this very moment on your way to Damascus to drive out or drag out believers? It is present, active, indicative. Why? Because Jesus is alive, friends. He's alive. This is the continuation of his ministry through his spirit. Saul thought Jesus was dead, cursed from hanging from a tree, but now this Jesus is speaking to him. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And friends, you cannot persecute a dead man. Why, though, would this be power for these early Christians and maybe even for us? Why would this be power to carry out the gospel mission uh, even unto our enemies? Because in being united to Jesus, they are united to him in death and in resurrection. In other words, the game is over, right? Easter sermon coming. This is victory 
And it has been claimed in the resurrection. And all those united to Jesus by faith share in that victory, which cannot be taken away. And if you know something can't be taken away from you, but that you already have everything in Christ, right? That's power. Fear goes away, right? And love emerges. And you, you are able then in so many new ways to move out to those neighbors, move out to those strangers, and even your enemies who might even be persecuting you to demonstrate the love of Jesus as you see here in chapter 9. Saul, who will become Paul, will spend the rest of his life writing about this phrase and its implications here in verse 4. Consider just one, Romans 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the power for gospel mission. Nothing can separate you from Christ, not even death, because Christians are people of the resurrection, not the tomb. So go, as we get into the the thick of this at this point, take up the gospel mission. Make disciples as you live and as you breathe, right? Love your neighbor. Risk befriending somebody, a stranger even, someone who is not like you. Give your money away. Be generous with your life. Pursue your enemies, in love, not fear, because victory is yours in Christ. This is following Jesus in Acts. This is following Jesus in Acts, which is different than preserving some type of Christendom that makes us feel what? Safe, in control, even powerful. Jesus has given himself away for us. The gospel mission will ask nothing less of us to, for the sake of the world, as we follow him. Just as Saul thought Jesus was dead, cursed from hanging from a tree, but now this Jesus is speaking to him, is he speaking to you this morning? Has he been pursuing you and you just keep kicking against the goads? Because he won't stop. His love knows no end. This account in chapter 9 ends with Jesus saying to Saul, verse 6, But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And thus begins one of the greatest transformations in human history. One of the most stunning demonstrations of sovereign grace and redemption. Saul will become Paul, the apostle, as many of you know. He will go on to be one of the leaders of the early church, planting multiple churches throughout the world, writing half of the New Testament. Oh, a chosen instrument indeed, as we look at verse 15. George Littleton, an 18th century English statesman, says this about this conversion, that the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration Sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. Derek Thomas, today, the the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is among the greatest events in the history of the church, and it is. It is. Because it shows us this wonderful blueprint for gospel mission, does it not? How God is at work. 
right? That God would go after his enemies and make them heirs, which is all of our stories if we believe. As his enemies, he made us his own, Romans 5, that while what? We were still sinners, Christ died for us. But also the power for the mission that Jesus is alive, united to his people, what happens to you then happens to him. Which means he understands where you are, your circumstances. He understands your pain. He is with you in the midst of it. But what happens to him then as well also happens to you. Rise, for you are people of the resurrection. It is decided. So what does that mean then for us today? What does it mean for us to be people of the resurrection, even in a COVID-19 world? Here's my one takeaway for us this morning. It means that you are on offense, not defense. You're not trying to preserve an outcome. The outcome is already decided. It is resurrection. Because Jesus is alive, friends. And your job, my job, is to live into that resurrection today. It is the gates of hell that we are told in Matthew that will not prevail against the church that Jesus is, start, is creating here. That they are the ones on defense. No. Acts 9 is an offense passage if there ever was one. The biggest threat to the church, what, gets turned into not just the biggest leader, but the biggest lover of the church. Don't you want to see that today? I do. And I know you do too. Then as the church who is on offense, let us start running some plays that show the world what it means to be a people of the resurrection, united to Christ for the sake of this lost world. And here are two quick plays. One, prayer. And I am so grateful that we have made this an initiative for the past year and a half of this church. But prayer is the gospel, is the blueprint that we see here in Acts for gospel mission. Is it the same for Fort Worth Prez? Does this range reflect our range, right? Are we pursuers of our enemies? Maybe so, maybe not. I'm not sure. Whatever the case may be, this is our prayer. Is it not? And it's not a prayer to say, Lord, like, let's, will you do this, right? It's a prayer that says, I can't do this. And I need you to do this work in me, to change my heart so that what? I might love as you love. Have patience as you have patience. Be gentle as you are gentle. Pursue as you pursue. Prayer is a strong offensive play for the Christian as people of the resurrection. But here's the challenge for us, right? All of us would agree we would love to see Paul's come into our church. Man knows his theology, right? Great evangelist and an excellent teacher. Elder material if I ever saw one. But to get to the Paul's, right? You got to love the Saul. And that's messy. That's messy. Acts is messy. Ask Stephen. Are we willing to pray for God to change us, to give us hearts for the souls? 
and everybody in between. Another great play is growing into humility. How? We remember our story. We remember our story. We were once lost but have been found. (laughs) That's our story. Paul, how many times will he tell us over and over his story again and again, who he was, how he was the worst sinner, and how Jesus had mercy on him? And what did this do? It made him humble, which is almost impossible to defend against. You might not have met Jesus on the road to Damascus on the way to persecute Christians, right? But you have met him and you didn't deserve it. Me neither. Remembering our story, how sovereign grace found us, right, is living into the resurrection. You want to see your enemies of the church become leaders and lovers of Jesus and the church? Humility. Let's run that play. The church's rage, anger, pride, and and, and arrogance never brought anyone to Christ. Why? Because those are defensive plays. Those are scared plays. Those are plays full of fear. And that's not where we are, according to Acts chapter 9. Look, Saul in Acts 9, before Jesus gets him, is the picture of fear and anger and defense. He is trying to preserve an outcome. He is trying to preserve a way of life called Pharisaism. And he's angry. He's enraged. Like what? A wild Animal, there is no victory here. Contrast that with the rest of his life as seen in the New Testament, marked by humility, because the outcome is certain. The church, friends, is on offense. Even in our defense, right? As we think about 1 Peter 3.15, given a reason for the hope we have, with what? Gentleness and respect. Even in our defense, we're on offense. You are not trying to preserve an outcome. The outcome is already decided. It's resurrection because Jesus is alive. And your job, my job, the church's job is to live into that resurrection today. So what's it going to be? What's it going to be? What is going to characterize us as believers? Is it going to be Saul or Paul? Is it going to be defense or offense? Is it going to be tomb or resurrection? Because the church triumphant, friends, this is what Acts shows us, the church triumphant isn't waiting on us to decide. It is in victory formation moving down the field with or without us. Which is always the invitation to Acts in the first place. Come and be a part of what God is doing. Come and be a part of what he is doing because he is alive and he is with you, friends. Come chase darkness with me because Jesus is alive. He's united himself to you. Nothing can take that away. I love the hymn and the sands of time. The sands of time are sinking, especially the verse, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. That statement is true because Jesus never stopped pursuing you. May we 
as the church be marked by a love such as this and our pursuit of others as people of the resurrection. That's a blueprint, friends, for gospel mission. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you pursued Saul. You loved him, the worst persecutor of you. And you got him, and you made him your own. And in his story, we see our own story. And in the love that you showed him, we see the love that you have for us. Make us those people. Make the church those people. Teach us what it means that resurrection says we are on offense. That there is nothing to fear. For you have won. And the victory is yours and those who belong to you by faith alone. Would you do this for your glory, we pray. Amen.